1: on a tour, like I've looked at some of Justin's tour dates, both retrospectively and prospectively, and it, it, must, it must be difficult to ask him, ask Justin any new questions. It from is. all the many of the yeah. ones that you get as he goes on, so do, my apologies in advance. I do not mind. And then I did ask Justin, for those who haven't read the Passage Trilogy, and I know there are at least three here that haven't, mm-hmm. um, well, if he would summarize it, and he said because after all there are 800,000 words, could he summarise in two or three minutes? And he said, better if you read out the, um, what it's about from the Dean of Geek website, which is a really quite a good one. So if you bear with me for a little just to set the scene, and give Justin an rest before we start. At its heart, the trilogy is a post-apocalyptic epic, but even this very broad description feels reductive. Starting roughly in the present day, the series follows an abandoned young girl named Amy as she becomes an unwitting test subject in an attempt to use an ancient Bolivian virus that may be the source of the vampire myth to create a perfect super soldier. Amy's story unfolds against the backdrop of this ill-advised experiment, which quickly goes wrong when the 12 death row inmates in the United States, who were the primary test subjects, get loose and use their newfound powers to wreak all kinds of havoc. Cue a century-long time jump into the future, where humanity is all but decimated, surviving in tiny pockets against a world of virals, vampiric creatures presided over by the Twelve, the worst of humanity given chilling psychic powers and beastly appetites. When the apparently immortal Amy crosses paths with a group of ragtail survivors, a desperate quest to save the world and defeat the Twelve begins, a quest in which Amy, the girl from nowhere, may be the only chance of victory. To go back to the beginning, uh, Justin, you were born That's in... a good
2: summary. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. It works, yeah.
1: Den of Geek website. <laughs> you were born in 1962 at the height of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis being November 1963. Mm-hmm. And I was old enough to be actually a student at university while the Cuban Missile Crisis was on. And it was the day before or the day after the first episode of Doctor Who was shown on BBC television, Mm -hmm. so those two things are absolutely imprinted on me. (laughs) You mentioned the influence of science fiction writers, many of them depicting apocalyptic scenarios, and in particular you mentioned this book by, this is the first English edition, George Stewart's Earth Abides, a classic 1949 book which surely resonates with the um, themes of the passage. It was written by a professor of English, it's about a viral plague, an immortality of sorts, um, requiem and retribution and rebirth.
2: Is that, it's, a, what, it's a wonderful novel yeah. it's a wonderful novel and uh, he never wrote another book at all like it it was his only yeah. speculative fiction I came across the book at the Katona Village Library in Katona, New York when I was, I don't know 12 or 13 and it's a remarkable book it's still in print um, you can still get it out there I mean, but this this is, you know this is a gem. This original. I mean, I would mm. love to have that. But you want to <laughs> <laughs> just, leave that to me in some manner. Um, no, it was a very formative book for me. And um, what I like about that novel in particular, and there's, it, it, if there's a book that is sort of lurking behind the passage that, well, there are actually two, but that is clearly one of them. That was Ooh. the most formative apocalyptic story of my of my childhood. Um, it's a wonderful, very stately story of mankind's exit from the stage there's no real arm waving um that it's 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 all very calm and it's about a group of survivors who come together and you know um form a community and it's observant highly observant of what kind of community would would occur and how it would Get on with things, and changes in the natural world around them as a consequence of humanity's disappearance. And I loved the I loved the novel un- unreservedly, and I mm-hmm. and I still do. It, you have this beautiful copy. I still have the mass market paperback that has my sixth grade signature. You know, when you're a kid and you write your <laughs> names in your books, and I, I still have yeah. I still have that copy. There's a little homage to it in um, in the passage in the first book. There's a scene that is. I don't say you know directly lifted from Earth Abides. I was aware of what I was doing, but there's the scene early in the book when the main in here and when the main character uh, comes out of the woods and to discover that humanity is gone, and he comes across a uh, an abandoned store, and he has a hammer. Right, the hammer's the big Ooh. the big symbol in the whole thing, and uh, he wants to get in and and. Uh, he, he wants to, there's, he, no, I think it's a newspaper machine. He has to break some glass and break, you know, sort of break the law to do this. And he, and he finally, is, you know, he's, he's a very civilized guy. And he doesn't want to do it, but he finally does do it. And I have the same scene in the passage when Wolgast comes down the mountain after the, the fires, tree. and he and he, he breaks into the general store. And that is that is a little love poem to mm-hmm. to that novel. The, the trilogy is full of those little little, little thank you notes. Yeah. We'll
1: come to some more later. Yeah. Um, another one you said that influenced you was Neville Shoots on the Beach. Yeah. Now Eva Gardner is famously alleged to have said in nineteen fifty-six in the filming of that movie that there was no better place to make a movie about the end of the world than Melbourne. She seemed not to like it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't understand. I was
2: just there. It's a lovely city full of many fine But that
1: people. was nineteen fifty six, Yeah. After writing the passage trilogy, did you specifically ask your publishers to fit an Australian tour to check that theory out?
2: No, no, I didn't. I didn't, but I really wanted to come here. I mean, those of you who've read I mean everybody who's read the trilogy knows that Australia figures in it somehow, right, because there's apparently an academic conference going on Mm -hmm. um, in the future in Australia discussing the events uh, that occurred in North America a thousand years ago. And that was, you know, part of my design from the very beginning, and uh, the reason I put it in there was it's on the beach, right? Which is, has anybody here read that novel recently? Right, I reread it recently. I hadn't read it since I was a kid, and I'd seen the movie. There was also an awful television movie put on, on Showtime. Yes, that's right, You yes. can see it on YouTube. It's absolutely horrible. Um, <laughs> but I reread the book before coming here, and it's a, it's a fascinating novel. I mean, it was really worth the reread because it's so, like Earth to so calm. Right, it's the saddest story I've ever read. It's completely devastating, and I, you know, and I remembered that aspect of it. When I was formulating the passage, but as you know, it, it's a it's a book utterly without hope, and exactly. humanity ends in Melbourne, Australia. That's, yeah. You know, that's yeah. the yeah. end of it, yeah. and um, that has that moment at the end of the novel where she takes the pills. Mm-hmm. Right? It's sat with me since I was a kid, and I really, really wanted to change that moment, and so I wrote a book in which humanity is reborn there. Mm, right. right. Yeah. yeah. Can talk about having your- never been to Australia, by the way. And <laughs> those of you who think that the University of New South Wales, where this conference is going on, was like me using the, I I just made that up. I didn't know that. I didn't know that a place like that actually existed. It was one of those thousands of things you just sort of toss out there. And that uh, sounds like that sounds good. You know, yeah. I was going so. to ask
1: Justin later why he chose the University of New South Wales, and not Sydney University or ANU. Yeah, yeah, I just <laughs> tossed that out, yeah. It's it a up. thousand years, a, it's thousand and one AV, isn't it, after yeah. the, the conference is yeah. being so held? So it's a different one, you yeah. Know, yeah. You know, so. mm-hmm. um, just to go back to the childhood, you said, or stated, I was a big reader as a kid. I lived in the country with no other kids around and spent most of my childhood either with my nose in a book or wandering around the woods with my head in some imagined narrative or another but the groundwork was all laid, reading with a flashlight under the covers. Now, you could almost see that with the mobile phone generation, yeah. but do you think there's a lack of attention span for long narrative reading like the passage, your mm-hmm. daughter, of course, being an exception?
2: No, I, I think we have a, we have, we have, we're reacquiring the attention okay. span, yeah. I think. Um, there, I think a couple of things have happened that have created um, a, a new appetite for a more long, sustained narrative. And one of the first one was Harry Potter. Right, which the entire world read. Right, and there's how many volumes? Six or seven? I don't even. I can't even remember. And the books are really, really long. And um, and the generation that grew up on those books—they're—they're—they're they're, they're not grown-ups. I mean, my my daughter came to the party a little bit late. She's twenty years old, but there are people in their thirties who you know read those books as kids, sort of giving them you know an early experience of long narrative and being thoroughly immersed in it. The other thing that's happened. Um, I'm getting a little echo here, am I not? Is we okay? okay? Okay, I'm hearing a little. Um, the other thing that happened, oddly enough, is television got really good. Ooh. And I think this has actually had a big effect <laughs> on books. The long narrative. Yeah, because. Um, you know, in the 19th century, the big fat novels, Dickens, right? These were serialized, mm-hmm. right? That's right. And people were just waiting for the next chapter. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the late 90s, a television show came along in the United States called The Sopranos. It was the first really high-quality dramatic show, which does, The Sopranos did exactly what good novels do, which is it had. It was a story about a, a, a culture. Right, the culture in this case of the Cosa Nostra in New Jersey, mm-hmm. but um, and it has had you know, a, a large ensemble cast and multiple threads and it, it was, the, the plot structure is really quite Dickensian. And now, of course, you get any three adults who don't know each other very well in a room and you need an icebreaker, somebody just says, what are your shows, am I right? Mm-hmm. And there are so many good ones now, and a lot of novelists actually have moved in, you know, full-time or part-time into television. And so we have now, I mean, I, honestly, I think good television is kind of our new Dickens. And, um, and it's not, and the TV I grew up on was, you know, 70s, it was horrible, and now it's just, it's wonderful, it's art. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also creating an appetite for long sustained narrative, whether it's big fat novels with multiple narrative strands or series books and, and so on. I think we really like mm-hmm. this stuff, we're coming back to it. I yeah. think, oddly enough, television has now become good for books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could yeah.
1: all join in just to go back to your childhood yeah. can you tell us a little about your education you grew up in Massachusetts, New York went yeah. to boarding school at Andover
2: and then to Harvard yeah. did you go on
1: a scholarship or were your parents wealthy? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that's a very, no, my parents were a catastrophe actually uh, my education was paid for by relatives Oh great! Right, yeah. So yeah. I, yeah, I was very lucky, but I, yeah, I had a spectacular education. But um, my uh, my parents were a classic case of downward mobility. Um, so um, there there you, there you have my story. And we'll come
1: back, back to Harvard in a minute when we yeah, go back to yeah. this uh, city, the third volume. And, and after Harvard, you took a course at the Iowa Writers Center and yeah. were successful with two um, literary books, mm-hmm. Marion O'Neill, which went on to win the Penn Hemingway and the Stephen Crin Prize, and The Summer Guest 2004. Mm-hmm. You said they were sort of, quote, warm hearted domestic novels, but your daughter Iris thought these books boring after she looked at the covers. She looked learnt. at the covers. Okay. <laughs> she was eight. You replied, well, that's literary novels. Yeah. What led to the sea change of doing the passage then?
2: Well, I mean, what happened? And it's, you know, I apologize to people if they've heard this story before. But what happened was that I decided, just for laughs, to concoct a story with my daughter. Right? She was eight years old, and she's the one who had professed this this ir- irritation, or at least a sort of sense of uh, hopelessness about my career, and. <laughs> So we, uh, we spent an hour t- uh, together every day after school for a period of about 90 days where I'd go running and she'd come along on her bicycle and we'd just spin out a story. And it was just for fun, you know? It, we, we were just kind of killing time. Maybe I was introducing her to the family business. But what came out of that was really a very solid outline for the first book of the trilogy. i had had no intention of writing any, any of this, none whatsoever, mm. I was just, we were just having a good time. Um, but by the time we had kind of reached the end of this, and we had not only kind of a full story for the first book, but also a good, strong sort of summary of books two and three, what they would be about, um, I decided I would type up some notes. And so I went to my office and I t- typed up what we had, because I thought maybe I'd use mm-hmm. it later. I was actually working on another book, and that book was sort of on oxygen at that point. It was, it was not going very well. And, and I, when I when I was done, I realized I had 30 single, spaced pages of notes I had a, a complete playbook for a really long and complicated novel and I just and I knew a ton about it all the characters everything I mean it was this, it was a fire hose of information and so I said okay well this is pretty interesting and it, one of the reasons I had all this information was I really liked the story it tapped into a lot of things in my past and what I loved about books such as this right and um, so it just Said okay, I'll, I'll write the first chapter. See how it feels, and it just felt terrific. Mm. And yeah. you sent it anonymously
1: into um, into the publishers. Office. Well, yeah. yeah what happened
2: the... was, I, I, you know, I had a I had a very busy day job, and I actually had several day jobs at that time. I was an English professor at Rice, but I was also teaching in. Um, um, uh, low residency graduate program, and you know, I, I was running a little studio out of my house, teaching some private classes, and I was a guy who was really trying to pay the bills, keep my wife out of the workforce as long as I could after the birth of our son, right? Who was, you know, uh, we moved to Texas in 2003 when I took a job at Rice, because she was, uh, we were about to have a second child, and we really needed a, you know, an opportunity for her to not work for a while. So that's that was my project, um, but I uh, I was supposed to be writing this other book, right? Uh, which was under contract, and um, very quickly, the advance got spent. Um, (laughs) It was just absorbed into the needs of family life, right? And we didn't, you know, blow it at the track. You know, it was, you know, diapers and insurance and the mortgage and all that stuff. Um, And and what had happened was I had started writing the passage instead, right? and so the other book was going absolutely nowhere, and two things were happening. One, I was not meeting an obligation on which I owed money, and two, I was also making no money, apart from you know, my teaching salary. And so um, I had to make a decision if I was going to keep going with it or not, and I asked my wife. You know, it, was, it had to be a family decision, and, and I said, if I keep going with this book, you know, we could be in a lot of trouble if it doesn't work out. And she said, uh, okay, well, if that's what you want to do, that's fine, but I have one question, which is, can your publisher take our house? <laughs> that's a good question.
1: For not paying the advance. If we're not, yeah, yeah. For, for not turning in a book and owing yeah. the
2: advance back. And uh, I said, that's a good question, I'm, I'll find out. And I called my accountant and uh, I said, you know, can they get the house? And she said, no, they cannot because of the homestead laws in Texas. The homestead laws in Texas (laughs) were designed so that men could not gamble away the homestead at the poker table. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thus, you know, there's what I was doing, was I was was gambling at the poker table. So I proceeded with it. I got as far as I could before the coffers were empty. That was about page 400. I said it to my agent. I had no idea if anybody would want it at all. Like, I mean, I, had, I honestly had no idea yeah. if what I, you know, if, if it, I'd just get rejected and laughed at, but the one thing I did was I said, let's submit it under a pseudonym, and let's submit it under a pseudonym that is gender nonspecific so that it can get an absolutely cold read, because the one thing I knew is that if she sent out the manuscript to various publishers and said, this is by Justin Cronin, they'd immediately go to Bookscan yes, and see what right. I had written and how many copies had been sold. <laughs> right. And I wanted them to just read the work on its own Mm -hmm. terms. And in part, that was because I was testing a theory I had. um, It seemed to me that publishing was very interested in me writing the same books again and again and again across my life. And I loved my first two novels, but they were really only one aspect of my personality and my interests and my concerns as an artist and as a person. Uh, The passage was the other side. Right? And I wanted to be able to work that way. So I said, let's do it under a pseudonym, and the pseudonym we chose was Jordan Ainsley. Right? Ainsley is my daughter's middle name, so it's a little tip of the hat to her. And Jordan is a name, it's actually the name of a character in my second novel. Um, but it's also a name that is either male or female, depending upon, like, how you hear it. You know? It's very often a man's name, but Jordan Baker in The Great Gatsby is a woman. so. Um, what, so I wanted, uh, so I didn't do it as Jay Ainsley, where it would be clear I was hiding the gender. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to simply project their expectations mm-hmm. onto it, right? In other words, to have a completely pure experience as a reader. And uh, so I, I, you know, we, we submitted it. She said, "This is a, you know, this is a, a, a known writer of some reputation who's who's doing this under a pseudonym. Uh, you can find out who it is if you make an offer." On the book. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I had never had any intention of publishing it under yeah. a pseudonym. Yeah. I just wanted to, as I said, well, kind of break the, uh, break the chains. Yeah. Yeah. Doris yeah. Lessing did that once under the name Jane
1: Summers as well. She's oh, in yeah. two novels. There. Yeah. Um, when it became successful, both commercially and critically, mm-hmm. um, what did your academic colleagues think of this? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good Did you just question. say bye bye to them all? Well, <laughs> you know, well, What happened was
2: I had ended, I was on leave, and I was I was on leave so long. Yeah. Um, I didn't actually resign my tenure until uh, I guess about three years ago, because. They, um, they needed the tenure line back, mm-hmm. and I kept offering it to them, and they'd say, no, 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 just, you know, i yeah. on yeah. leave again, because I was a full professor, and, yeah. you know, they could hire a replacement of lower rank yeah. for so much less money. They were totally yeah. cool with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I said, that's fine, but eventually, you know, we'd had two new provosts and three new deans, and at some <laughs> point, somebody looked at the paperwork and said, who is this guy? <laughs> um, so I'm actually going back to teach a class next yeah. spring, uh, just to kind of get me out of the house, and I like teaching. I haven't done it for many okay. years. Um, Do they ask you for money? Alumni? Money? No, they haven't done that. That's no, very slow for America. Yeah, no, well, the, rest, the university I teach is so rich, I don't think that, you know, oil and gas money it's is a lot bigger than book money, That's right, I yeah, assure you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't really know, to, to, to be perfectly yeah. honest, what my colleagues think of it. They were very happy to have me come back and oh. teach a class. Um, but I'm not the same guy that I was before, so oh. we'll find out. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I'll, let, I'll let you know. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, when I told people, just this fits into things you've talked about in genre, but when I was trying, looking around the audience, I think there's about 12 of our normal quote literati here, including the head of our research office, mm-hmm. um, who may not be literati, but he's head of our research mm-hmm. office, but um, the People here are ones who don't normally come to the mm-hmm. to the things, and so when I was telling people about, you must come because it's beautifully written. It's it's mm-hmm. what's it about? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's an apocalyptic trilogy, mm-hmm. and i said, don't, I said, don't mention the word vampires. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, the book never does. Right? Yeah, I know, but, yeah, but, so, but a lot of the publicity does, and I thought, yeah. it, 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 how how do you see that sort of um, literati genre scene at the moment that? You know, in fact, you should have had a lot of the people who were at the Canberra Writers Festival at the weekend, but yeah. they haven't turned up, and it's their fault because yeah. they will miss. But there's that, yeah. even though they're all books on the shelf, as you once said, yeah. um, it does yeah. tend to fall into crime, science fiction, fantasy, right? No, no, no.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what to make of all that to yeah. be to be perfectly honest. I mean, when I sat down to write this, when I first started writing it, I wondered oh. if I would work in a different register in some Ooh. manner. I didn't at all. I, mean, well, I ended up writing it just the way I write everything else, with yeah. the same basic concerns and the same arsenal of, of you know, language and s- syntax and you know, how hmm. I structure scenes and so on. So it really wasn't very different at the, you know, at, at the keyboard, I was not going about it differently. It mm-hmm. was a different kind of project, I had to learn how to do new things, mm-hmm. obviously working on a very large canvas you know, many, many, many narrative threads, um, and uh, I had to learn how to write a large action scene, and mm-hmm. with, which I'd never done, and which I I couldn't find any particularly strong literary templates <coughs> for. Um, so for me, you know, it's the book's just a book. Um, the, uh, yeah, I think people do appreciate the, the, the care of the writing, I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I hear that I can hear their appreciation for the writing, but they're not actually putting it that way. Is they, they say like I was so involved in the story, I felt like I knew the characters, the, all the settings are so vivid, it's like watching a movie. That you know, a book is full of sentences and that's what sentences do. That is their job, you know, that is good writing's job. And so that when people feel really involved in the story over a protracted period of time, you know, I attribute that to good writing. Mm. Now I did too good reading. Now, you know, where they file it in the store, that's a marketplace consideration. Mm. And you know, it helps people find books they might like. Yes. Right. And, you your, know? and
1: yours is more likely to be nearer the front than the ones you said about male midlife crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: <laughs> I shop at the back of the store most of the time, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my reading habits are really quite literary mm. uh, for the most part. I mean, they, they ping pong around. I mean, why do I like this book? Right. Yes. It's a book about the apocalypse. Why do I like it better than other ones? Because the writing is great. Yeah, yes, very good right. I mean, this is this really works. He really mm. knew how to write a sentence, yeah. and he really knew how to That's write good. a scene. And it's just a meticulous yeah. guy. And he was
1: a professor of English at California.
2: Yeah, actually, etymology was his specialty. He wrote yes, several special. books on the history special. of certain words. I mean, yeah. yeah, he was a real nerd.
1: And it was a yeah. great. I right? yeah. yeah. yeah, love that. And it was a great influence on Ursula Le Guin as well. Yeah. Um, the, just to quickly return to the vampires, in your Politics and Prose um, interview, you said a wonderful phrase, and that's why I've just written it down this afternoon and hardly read it. Mm-hmm. It says, vampires have metaphysical plasticity. Yes, they And did. I thought that was a wonderful phrase. And then you went on to say, what were the two best vampire movies? And you cited one I'd never heard of, New Dark. Bump.
2: Near Dark. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Near Dark. Now, I would kind of wanted to work with the vampire story in some manner for a very long mm-hmm. time, since the 80s, because I had noticed the degree to which the story could be um, sh- shaped and reshaped and then stuck onto other stories right um, uh, the the movie near dark was yeah, the one that I'm i mentioned look it up. I'm yeah, gonna, yeah no it's Catherine bigelow's first yeah. uh, it was first, Catherine bigelow's first major yeah. release she did like zero dark 30 yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. was was a movie of hers and um, it's it, the movie is it's a it's a kind of a B movie from the yeah. 80s. Everybody's got like 80s hair and 80s clothes. So you got to kind of, you know, roll that. Yeah. But I really recommend this movie. Here's the here's the basic setup. A bunch of vampires are roaming the American West in a Winnebago, right? <laughs> Big motor home, right? And they'll stop at a roadside bar and eat everybody and then leave, right? And there's, you know, and then it's about one character who they take in, they, you know, the way, you know, vampires might drink all your blood or just a little bit and then you're a vampire, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So it worked with the, you know, the vampire mythology and its totality, but it had, had attached it to another, uh, another trope, which was yeah. um, the American, very American narrative of the highway drifter serial killer, mm-hmm. right? And, and, they, were, and they, they adhered beautifully to one another. And and I, no, I noticed this, yeah. and I thought that I thought that was really really interesting. Oh, and um, so for many years, and there are, there are other examples of it, but it's a it's a very detail rich monster. Yeah. The zombies the zombies are low detail, okay? Yeah. Like, you know they're great, but the problem with zombies is that they're already dead, <laughs> right? <laughs> and every zombie movie or TV show eventually degenerates into a scene where people kind of figure out they're already dead, and they start killing them for fun right? Because they're not really killing anything, mm. right? And they're, yeah, and they're all dressed for work, right? Yes. There's the, there's the, you know, the metaphor's pretty clear, right? There's the, there's the waitress zombie and there's the accountant zombie and yeah, we're all zombies and they all have jobs. Like, I get it, right? Um, and uh, the werewolf, you know, what's the werewolf story? Okay, men are dogs. We already know that. <laughs> uh, what uh, you
1: must do is get Jessica to buy you the DVD here of Van Helsing. I don't know whether you've seen that with Hugh Jackman. Yeah, that that's... I that, that but that's got go, werewolves, yeah. Frankenstein, and Dracula in right, that. Yeah. Dracula's played by Richard Roxburgh, I don't know whether you've seen this, yeah. very... who will be here at the campus, in, and his wife, Sylvia Kaluca, who's one of the brides. But, mm. um, anyway, that's another story. Yeah, yeah. Go back to um, City of Mirrors. Yeah. Um, the, you've said in the interviews that the character that uh, Justin identifies most with is Timothy Fanning. It's yeah. interesting. The bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> and the extensive Harvard section in The City of Mirrors is particularly important in that backstory. Um, how much of that reflects your time at Harvard in that longish novella? Yeah. And you've actually said there were echoes of uh, Evelyn Waugh's
2: Bride said of Right. Them. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, in Every book, I wanted to spend a certain amount of time in uh, the here and now, right? a sort of deep backstory, and the deepest backstory is the story, is Fanning's story and his relationship with Jonas Lear mm-hmm. and, um, and Elizabeth Makeham, who becomes Lear's wife. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, the thing I wanted to do in the third book with his story, and I realized this very quickly, is I wanted to do the, the, the one thing I hadn't done yet, which was let somebody just tell their own story. Mm-hmm. So I wrote it in first person. Yes, right. Um, another important book for me was uh, Evelyn Waugh's *Brideshead Revisited*. I loved that unreservedly when I was in college in 1982, and I think this was actually our first experience, at least in the states, of, of good the television, yeah. right? The BBC miniseries of *Brideshead Revisited*, um, you know, made it to the states, right. and, and when I and that was my sophomore year at Harvard, mm-hmm. and we used to all dress up, make martinis, and have a party in my room for every episode, watching it on my black and white TV that was like the size of a periscope, right? Uh, With rabbit ears and so on. And I loved the novel a great deal, and it really sort of spoke to me because I was in those same kind of circumstances. Being a kid of ordinary means at Harvard was not so unlike Charles Ryder encountering the flight family, you know? so when I when I when I got to write the Fanning story, I, I, I you know I'd always known that these these people were college friends, and in this case, a college roommate. Um, and I'd always i always wanted to write about Harvard. You know, I went there, and I, I it's a very particular body of information that I had access to, which is the particular social customs of that institution, which are which is different from every other institution, I think. Yeah. And so yeah, I gave the guy my life. Mm, right? Yeah. I gave the guy my life the the final club that he joins, the speed yep, club. Yep. I was in it. Okay, okay. I confess. Yeah, yeah, I was in it. And the ritual with the bear. I, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that happened. <laughs> um, so I finally got to use some kind of autobiographical material from yeah. that from and that phase of my life. And Liz Maycomb is of course the, the yeah. girl I didn't get. Yeah. Right? Her name is Katherine. Right. <laughs> She's Canadian. <laughs> We're Facebook friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, yeah. but,
1: uh, yeah. and the fraternities had no impact on the virals or, or no, reflecting
2: on them? No, no. I was doing a book event in Seattle and a woman came up to me who I had not seen for 30 years and she was somebody in my college class and um, she, had, you know, she had recognized all of this material yeah. and for those of you who've you know, read The City of Mirrors, there's a, there's a scene that takes place on a beach in Massachusetts, right? Okay, there, there's a very important scene at a big on the beach below a big fancy house in the town of Osterville, Massachusetts, where I actually lived three months a year and grew up. And, and I said to this woman, you, "You recognize the house, right?" And she's like, "Yeah, that's Beth Healy's house where we had that graduation <laughs> party. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, absolutely." Um. Um, yeah, you live 54 years, you got some That's stuff cool. that you can use, yeah. right? Why Good. not? Good. Yeah, why not? Not everything has to be made up whole cloth.
1: Uh, we promised a question on Trump. Um, oh, God. <laughs> the 12 are all I'm men. I'm so
2: sorry. It's not my fault.
1: <laughs> the 12 are all men. It's women, however Amy, Lish, Sarah, Auntie Lacey, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, play a key role in saving the world. And uh, of no, this,
2: this, is, this book is totally about the women. Okay, so there's do no question. Th- the men are just luggage handlers. Yeah. So, right?
1: <laughs> do you think Hillary can save the world from Donald Trump? No, I hope so,
2: yeah. No, I, you know, is that a serious question? Do yeah, I think she's going to win the presidency? Yes, yeah, yeah, she's yeah, going to win the presidency. Yeah. See, we're not that crazy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> not yeah, you crazy. never could tell Brexit happened in Britain. No, You're I know. Right? That's, yeah. I
2: mean, but I think the, because Brexit happened, yeah. I think. Uh, Trump can't happen because I think people will say, "Listen, you cannot just you know stay home and yeah. or make a protest vote. Your protest yeah. vote may you know yeah. make a huge problem." So no, I, I, I and think watching we're okay. Nigel Farage on
1: the stage with Trump the other day was really oh terrible. Yeah. but anyway. Um, Many authors contrast the solitude of writing with the exhibitionism of book tours. Yes, um, oh my God. Peter no. Curry used to say, I hate book tours and actually doesn't do them much anymore. But how do you find touring? And do you actually see any of the country other than hotel bedrooms and bookshops?
2: Well, a little bit. I mean, it depends on where I am. I, yeah. I've got some... I, 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 want, I wanted to come to Australia very badly because uh, first of all, you're Australia. right? And every uh, time they do a list of the best cities to live in in the world, you guys are always like half the list. <laughs> right? Um, and because Australia was in the book. You know, I put it in, and it's a place I hadn't seen. Every other place in the book is a place I have been. Every mile a character walks yeah. in these books is a mile I walked. I, I traced the route that the, that the people, you know, the, Amy and Peter and that crew who leave First Colony, that's, a town, that's actually based on a town in Southern California where I lived one summer. I was teaching at an arts academy. It's called mm-hmm. Idlewild, California. And I went every mile that they did to Telluride, and I did it twice, right? And I did it at the same time of year. I took note of the seasons, the the changing landscape. I did it all, and I'm very, very loyal to the Mm -hmm. actual world in the books. And I had been, in a sense, the one disloyalty was the fact that I had had never been here. So Mm -hmm. at some point in the spring, I was aware that I had a very, very good uh, audience here, that my books Mm -hmm. had sold well, And through social media, I was aware that there were a lot of passionate readers of the series here, and um, and I I went on. Somebody was saying you should come to Australia or something. You know, I I got some Mm -hmm. tweets to that effect, and I was like, and I finally said, yeah. And I tagged Orion, which is my British publisher, who is therefore also my Australian Mm -hmm. publisher. And I said, yeah, send me to Australia. And any retweet any Australian uh, readers (laughs) if you want me to come to Australia. And in fact, so they sort of caved. Right? And they said, okay, fine, you can go to Australia. And, and then I got the same thing for Ireland. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to go to Ireland, too. And so I did, it that, I did that. And then they said, Justin, stop it. Okay, We're not sending you to Ireland. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I really wanted to come. Now, most a lot of touring, it should not be called book tour. It should be called book march. right? <laughs> um, and yeah, you just go. In the States, you get on a plane That's at right. six in the morning, and you fly to denver or portland or where and you do some media and you do a book event and you try to get some exercise and need a hamburger a room service hamburger and go to your book event and then go to bed it's early because you got a right. plane the next morning i mean yeah. that's really what it is yeah. it's very very much like that yeah. um certain you know places treat you better yeah. than others um, but i had always wanted also to tour here because a friend of mine who did uh, who did a book tour in australia had always said it, that, that it was it was the best place to do a book tour. And we we're talking about Hannah Tinty, right, mm-hmm. who's got a book coming out here pretty soon and she's a bud of mine and so she'd always said it was great. So a
1: yeah. couple of last questions I'll have yeah. before we throw it open. Um, you you talking about the long narratives in the te- television and originally the book I think was commissioned for possible filming by Ridley yeah, Scott. Yeah, it was yeah, bought by Fox for yeah. Scott Free Films. But now it seems to be morphing into maybe a TV series. We've got yeah. um, Daniel O'Malley here who is going through the same process with The Rook, who's our sort of global yeah. success. Um, whereabouts is that with drafting script for a television and showmaster? Well, the, and
2: um, yeah, the, I'd been kind of hoping that we'd move the whole thing to television for a really long time. When they had bought it for film, I knew that it was going to be very, very hard, if not impossible, to fit yeah, each work. of these books into a two-hour movie. I didn't see how to do it, because the, not only was it you know, a large story with many characters, it was Dickensian in structure, in the sense that all the, main, all the character threads all connected to all the other character threads. There were, in fact, no minor characters. And when they, um, when they um, take a book and turn it into a movie, they, the first thing they do is they throw people out. They throw them over the side. Um, Incidentally, *Brides Visited* is, is is a short novel, mm-hmm. and the and I noticed this way back mm-hmm. when because I, I I wrote a paper on *Brides*. I got really fascinated by the novel. Um, literally every sentence of that novel, every line of dialogue, mm-hmm. every scene is in the BBC miniseries, and the BBC miniseries mm-hmm. is like twelve or That's fifteen right. hours long, mm-hmm. and it's a two hundred and eighty-page novel, mm-hmm. right? So you just can't fit very much in a movie. And also, I knew that, you know, these days pole movies like that tend to be CGI extravaganzas, which I, per, which I personally don't much care for anymore. Mm. Right? Um, so I knew going in that they were making a mistake. Mm. Nevertheless, I cashed the check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and across you know, a period of years, they tried to get a script out of it. They couldn't do it. Mm. They tried somebody else could do it. And the whole thing went into development hell. And, uh, but I was kind of hoping they would eventually see the wisdom of mm. doing this as television. And then along came two shows, Game of Thrones and Walking Dead, mm. both of which um, demonstrated a, you know, an appetite for fantastic narrative, um, how deep the audience's interest mm. could go, uh, that you could spend a lot of money on one of those shows and still make money, that's Game of Thrones. Mm. Both of those shows are I don't want to say they're running out of gas, but they've mm-hmm. been around for a while. You mm-hmm. know, I've never seen really a good season seven of anything. Mm-hmm. And Game of Thrones, of course, has the problem that they've written past the novels, right. right? And Walking Dead, there's only so many. There's only so much you can do with that narrative, and you can feel it sort of. <laughs> am I wrong? It's sort of no. running out of gas a little it's bit. Getting- I still love yeah. it, but it's become very, very repetitive. And I don't really care who he hit, right? <laughs> you know, I realized that I didn't care. Um, whether it's Glenn or whoever, yeah. Um, those of you who watch the show, you know what I'm talking about. Don't <laughs> I, yeah. Um, so uh, what happened was finally, it does indeed look like we're moving mm-hmm. to television. Um, I just sent an t- email today, like was, you know, all caps. Where is the contract because it's supposed <laughs> to be executed now? Um, there's, uh, it's still associated with Scott Free, mm-hmm. um, and at this point, I don't know who we have for showrunner. There was somebody that mm-hmm. was we thought we were going to have as a showrunner but then his own pilot got picked up. Oh, right? okay. That's the problem dealing with Hollywood is that all of a sudden things happen to other people. Like, it is totally off your screen and has no, no relationship to you or to the project Ooh. or whatever that simply changes everything. So we, I don't know at this point who the showrunner is. Matt Reeves was is involved in it in some mm-hmm. manner. I hope he directs the pilot. God, right. okay. uh, he's been involved for a while, but I can't say that he will or not. Okay. He's just he's, he's he's a great guy. He's really smart. He did the Planet of the Apes franchises and okay. let the right one in, which is a terrific okay, yeah. movie. and oh, yes, Cloverfield, and which doing. I really like, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a you know a Godzilla movie, yeah. right? The
1: um, After 800,000 words, um, three books, and you wrote in the, uh, quoted in the UK Guardian recently that the trilogy's finished, it's like someone's tipped over all the drawers in the rooms, the room is uncomfortable and empty, so where do you go next?
2: Did I say that? That's really good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's
1: a direct quote. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, what are I next well it, when you for me the experience of finishing a book and in this case it's finishing 10 years worth of work that I do is sort of one long book so you know is it, the emotions are in a sense outs, oversized by this um, the experience of finishing a book is I was actually quite melancholy and I'm mm. out of sorts I am badly out of sorts for a while um, I hate book parties. My wife threw book parties for the first two, and then for the third one, I was like, just don't bother. I, don't, I never have a good time. I'm too depressed. <laughs> uh, and I am. I get really depressed. And what I, th- I think that's because uh, you know, the metaphor I used there was all the you know, the, the kicked over and empty drawers. Mm-hmm. Um, I borrow a lot of my emotional life when I'm writing a book from the experiences of my characters. Right. How I'm feeling about the world is in some ways derived from what's going on in the novel, and then when the book suddenly gets fixed in place, there's no more story to tell. Mm. Right? Um, I just kind of go blank, I and mean, it's like it's like it's like my, half my brain just suddenly drains and it's empty, mm. and, and I have to reconstruct my personality. Um, and it's quite disorienting, actually. It's, yeah. A lot of people think you finish a book, and you celebrate, and you jet off to Cabo and do some jello shots, and you know, <laughs> it's like finishing your final exams at uni, right? Yeah. Um, and it, for me, it's, maybe it is for some people, but not not for me. So um, the only solution is to write something else. Okay. right? That's the only solution. And when I was, um, working on the passage since 2005, and, and to the exclusion of all other things in my life since 2007, mm-hmm. um, once in a while, I would get an idea. It would be a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Cool idea for a book. How about that? And I'd, and I'd write it down in the cool idea book. I right? had a little composition notebook. It says, it says cool idea book on the outside. Right? And I kept a list of these, and I had you know, maybe 10 or 12 that were, seemed like really cool ideas. Um, and I assumed that when I was done with the passage, I would go to the cool idea book and pick the coolest idea and write that cool idea as a, as a cool book, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And what happened was um, all of those ideas were, were not what I was thinking about now, right? Maybe in 2012, that was the cool idea that, took my, that had my attention, But no longer. Something else was bugging me. Right? And I won't go into details, but um, last, not this summer, but the previous summer, and I mean our summer, Northern Hemisphere summer, I had this, I just, this, there was like a, just a single image and a, and a moment that, and a word that got into my head, and I spent the entire summer every night after everybody had gone to bed, walking around the block, trying to figure this thing out. And I couldn't do it a, at all, and it was driving me crazy. And then sometime in November, what ha- the thing that happened is what always has to happen, where you, you have an idea, and it attaches to another idea, mm-hmm. right? That's because that's how these things work for me. It's always at least, it's, it's at least two things. And the idea attached, and um, that's what I'm working on now. It's still kind of in its infancy, and I'm blowing on the embers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Jess knows that I, one of the things I asked for on tour is that I stay in a hotel that has a swimming pool. Um, And by that I'm in a swimming pool where you can do laps. Because I do all of my creative thinking um, in motion, as I did with my daughter, riding the bike, and she was riding the bike and I was running. It's been many, many years since I could sit down and say I need a good idea and come up with one. I tend to get them almost entirely in this semi-hypnotic state of aerobic exercise. It used to be running, my knees got a little tired of that, um, and now I swim to do it. And so I spent an hour today Thinking about the book. When I say Mm -hmm. thinking, I mean free associating. Um, I am going to continue working in high concept science fiction in some manner. I like it a lot. Right. As it turns out, I'm kind of good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And I like the way in which big plots make characters be themselves. Because if you're running for your life, you can't help but be who you are. All the bullshit drops away. Right? And I really like that. So okay. I'm going to keep working on yes. that form.
1: Yeah. OK, we've got 15 minutes is for questions. Is it OK
2: questions? that
3: I used the word bullshit?
2: No, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, I'm probably fine. Yeah. You're a frontier society. Yeah.
3: You know? Yeah.
1: If you'd like to ask a question, yeah, yeah. Catherine's got the microphone. Sure, there must be lots of questions. She saw an Emma. She saw one. This is how we get exercise.
3: had to force the
2: to make or they all organically? Well, yeah. I mean, there, there is a tension between the book and the writer, right? Um, I am not somebody who would say, as I hear some writers occasionally say, the characters took over the book. No, they are extensions of my will, right? <laughs> I mean, I made them. Um, so I don't really let them boss me around. Um, that said, I do learn things about them as I go. For the most part, though, I am using the design of the book as a way of helping me figure out who they are, not the other way around. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's one of those things that is very hard to, it's not a process like building a house or, um, you know, it's, it's art, you know, it's really intuitive, and, and my process won't necessarily be other people's processes, but I try to know my characters as well as I can in advance of deploying them in a book, and I find it enormously helpful in advance to know one thing about them, and this is my trick. And, you know, if you're a writer and you want a trick, and you like this trick, go ahead, use the trick, it's a good <laughs> trick. I need to know what they're not talking about. Right? What is the thing in their life? What is the, as I call it, the stone around their neck? The thing that they're always carrying. It's always present, but they're not talking about it. And I have one, and you have one, and everybody in this room's got one. Right? And you don't have to tell me what yours is, <laughs> and I won't tell you mine. Right? For Amy, it's wool gas. Right, for Peter, it's the conversation that he with it was his his relationship with his father and how he thought that Theo was the preferred one and then the misunderstood conversation he had with his mother. But this has created a state of kind of permanent uncertainty in him about what his role is in the world. Things are thrust upon him. People know that he's people know he's better than he knows he is a lot of the time. Um, It's true for all of the characters in the book. Michael and Sarah, their parents, right? Their parents decide. It's, in the third book, it's described as a room in which only the two of them reside, right? And if you know that about your characters, you know a lot. Um, and so when you um, drop a plan for a book and ask them to perform certain acts, you will ask them to perform the acts that they are capable of, right? You won't make the mistake, right?
1: Back over here, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, Alicia in the book. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering,
3: she was a uh, very tortured yeah. uh, person from the beginning. From the beginning,
2: she is. She has the. She has the hardest road in in the. So, story about. You know, yeah. she
3: was kind
2: of a standout, so. Well, what I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to have, as I said, the, the women are the most important characters in the book. The men perform duties and functions around them, and of course, many of them do perform significant acts, but the women are the core of the story. And what I did is I apportioned um, uh, female strength, the sort of traditional characteristics of female strength, out into different parcels, into different characters, right? And um, Amy, for instance, is spiritual strength. By the way, I, I think men and women are different, okay? If you don't think so, you're wrong. We're, we're, <laughs> right? we're really different. Um, um, uh, Amy is, is spiritual and intuitive strength, all right? Um, Sarah is the strength of motherhood and nurturing. She's the nurse, right? She becomes, she's Sarah, she's named for Sarah in the Bible, mother of nations, right? Um, Lore is sexual strength and sensuality. People kind of overlook Lore a little bit, but that's who Lore is, right? And Alicia is raw physical warrior strength, right? The, the, the strong physical, you know, thing. If you've ever, if you ever watched a woman have a baby, they are stronger than we are, gentlemen. Don't forget it. Okay, I've watched that show twice, yeah. um, and that's Lish, you know, and. She is made to suffer the most in the trilogy. Uh, she's, yeah, I, I put her through it. I really did. And I feel bad about it in some ways, but it kind of had to happen. Um, the two characters in these novels who give everything for the project, who get nothing back, are Michael and Alicia. Right? They, are the t- they are the two sides of the coin, Right? and they know that about each other. They, they get they get nothing. They give their whole lives for it and never any, for anything else. Mm. Daniel. Oh, by the way, Michael was originally created by my daughter. Um, all the characters were named by her, but Michael was a the character that was created to meet her demand that she wanted a character. She was eight, who was her ideal boyfriend. <laughs> 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 are massively complex and beautiful, but were there any elements or even scenes that you had to cut out oh, sure. that you regretted or tell us one? Or um, the, my, my, my editors would occasionally tell me to cut something out and I would, it would end up being a kind of horse trading thing where they'd say, you need to remove these three things and I'll say, I will remove one.
3: <laughs>
2: um, because I wanted to indulge in the long narrative and I figure anybody who's long for this ride, they're, you know, they're okay with tangents. Right, I mean, these kinds of books naturally have a certain kind of just overflowing abundance of story. Um, So, I would end up cutting out some things that were, to to my mind, truly unimportant. Um, The interesting stuff for me is the stuff that I couldn't make fit in at all because there was no, you know, novels held together by a certain kind of logic, right? And some stories just don't fit the logic, right? For instance, the story of the colonel, right? The, whole, the colonel's whole history, like who that guy is, he is left shrouded in myth for the whole thing, right? For the whole thing. Um, so I'm gonna write some of those narratives that I couldn't fit in, that are, you know, interesting to me. I'm gonna write them in another book. Uh, I'm gonna do. I haven't quite figured out exactly what I'm gonna do. But I'm going to write a group of you know sort of tales from the world of the passage, like three or four fairly long pieces. I think one of them will be about Danny's bus after you see it sail away at the end of the second novel. Um, the one about the Colonel actually has a title and is partially written. Um, because here I'll give you the kind of detail about him that's kind of cool. Like this is you know he's he's the Colonel, right? Well, as it turns out, he's 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 not a military officer. Like that's not where the name comes from. He was a street rat. Right? whose uh, father was beaten to death for gambling debts and his mother was sold into prostitution, right? And, um, but you know, all those street rats, all the kids in Kerrville have what they call a go-by, right, it's a name that they use, right? And somebody asked him when he's really young and just kind of getting used to being a street rat, like, what's your go-by? And he uses a nickname that it's like a baby name that his mother used to use for him. She said, you are my little kernel of a boy. Right? So he says, I'm Colonel, (laughs) K-E-R-N-A-L. Right? And the person here is C-O-L-O-N-E-L. And they're like, wow, that's a cool name, right? So that's who he becomes, but it's actually his baby name. Right? So there's the stone around his neck. Right? His mother. Right? So anyway, that kind of stuff. I could never get it in. There was no place for it. It didn't fit. Right? (laughs) Um, Danny's bus sails into oblivion. I'm still not sure if I'm gonna do that one or not because I kind of like the way it goes. But you know, later on, to, to how you know, um, April and her son you know, fare in the world so that ultimately, um, you know, she's Alicia's great-grandmother, you know, how that line travels. So, um, so I'm gonna kind of go back and do some of those things. There's one of them that I think will be its own novel and I've known this for a really long time. So I don't know when that's gonna happen. Um, but you know, that, down the road a little bit, I've got to take a bit of a break from the world. i been well. I would just keep going, but my, my agent is like, no, you are you know, only the guy who only writes the passage. So I got to go do some <laughs> stuff for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: lady in the front. Yeah, probably can oh. speak loudly. And, I, I yeah. don't need the microphone. Oh no, it yeah. yeah. so yeah. 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 sorry. The cover in the very.
2: Give it to the Get it used uh, microphone. The cover in the first book is that a picture of somebody
0: that you actually know, or it's just somebody just drew a fi- fictional face?
2: No, it's, not, it's not, nobody I know. Um, and you're you're referring to the UK Orion Australian edition, right? Real that speed, one, yeah. yeah. No, I have no idea what, who that girl is. None whatsoever. She's kind of creepy. Uh, <laughs> she's really Irish looking too, which I you know. Doesn't look like Amy. No, not to me either. Right. But it, you know, it's a, I, I thought it was a good cover because you're walking, you know, you're in a bookstore and you look over and a book looks at you,
3: right? yes. And I thought
2: that was pretty smart marketing, I guess. You know, I don't really think about that stuff very much, but yeah. Um,
0: it's interesting yeah. you mentioned you're a fan of *Walk the Dead* and stuff yeah. like that. And in that, they have the idea of a zombie that they try to deviate from. The characters mm-hmm. never call it a zombie; yeah. they call *walk*.
2: Well, because in the world of the Walking Dead, no zombie movies have ever been made. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, I was interested to wonder,
0: like, how that translates to the passage of the right. idea of vampires. Right. You embrace that, or be kind of skeptical and viral. Well, you, you will know that
2: nobody. The word is almost never used, yeah. right? And in fact, in the third book, it's referred to as the V word, right? Um, you know, the 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 trilogy presupposes it takes the it takes the idea that legends have historical bases. Right, and in this case, a biological basis. Lear goes looking for the virus that has is he that he believes produces biological symptoms that, um, you know, are uh, the source and you know analogous to the magical characteristics of the vampire creature. In other words, the vampire as a figure is one of lore, the one we all know is principally an Eastern European folktale, right? But then there's the real thing, which is in fact an illness. Right, it's an illness. So um, unpacking, deconstructing the idea of that vampire and giving it, you know, biological basis, um, is kind of openly. You know, The Walking Dead pretends that those stories never existed. I'm saying these stories exist; they have a basis in reality. Um, But the word itself is almost never used. I think it's a somewhat awkward word, and I didn't want my characters to be engaged in. I just kind of trap walking in walking inside that story all the time. I wanted them to have their own idioms for it, which I think they would because um, they don't look like the traditional vampires they're they they are somewhat different they're the basis for that idea now in the third book, Fanning looks in the mirror and he i don't want to you know commit any spoilers, but he sees himself as the traditional gothic vampire right and he says it. I think he says like I could barely say the word, and you know he rolls his eyes at the whole at the whole thing, um, because he views it as essentially kind of silly. Um, so the word is is rarely used. The one that is an the one that sort of is the most vampirous is the word drac, which is used in Kerrville for the for for the especially nasty ones. Uh, which is taken from the, the film Dracula, which the expeditionary all watches for fun, right? Um, so, anyway, the word is rarely used, and I didn't want to, I didn't think of this as a vampire, vampire fiction, whatever that is. I, I have to say, I haven't read a lot of vampire fiction. I grew up reading vampire comic books and watching Dark Shadows on TV. Anybody here remember Dark Shadows? Did you guys have that over here? It was a vampire soap opera, right? <laughs> Very scary. Um, and it was on at like you know four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and I would watch it after school. Um, every generation has its vampire lore and its vampire material. Um, so I, I didn't, but I didn't see it as vampire fiction. I was, I just, I used it as a boogeyman. I used it as a boogeyman.
1: We have time for one last yeah. question. Up the back, then, Catherine.
0: Thank you. And I guess I was just interested
2: if I've been rereading Dune recently. Dune? Yeah, I I was gonna do that myself because I haven't read it in a thousand years. Yeah. Probably in a sort of subterranean way. I mean, I feel like every book I ever read in some ways is sitting behind the passage trilogy. It wasn't an antecedent I was thinking about at the time uh, because it, I read it in 1974, right? And then I saw the movie in the 80s where they surf on the worms. That is so bad. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, so it's something kind of deep in my, deep in my past um, that I was not really super aware of. Uh, somebody else had pointed out that I had borrowed something at some point from Watership Down, which is a book I loved in the 70s. Right? I remember reading it one 72. summer. Right? And that's also sort of an adventure novel. A tra- a ro- it's a road novel, right? which the passage really is. I mean, I thought of it as a road novel more than anything else because you, I put my characters on the road and they had many adventures on the way. Right? It's a very durable literary form. The, the critic John Gardner said there are only two plots, um, leaving home and a stranger comes to town. Right? (laughs) And I mean, this says both, right? Amy's the stranger, comes to town, and then they leave home. Um, Nobody, Dick, right? Like leaving home, right? Um, Most novels fit into this paradigm somewhere. Um, But it's interesting you should mention Dune because um, I'm involved in a project right now with my son. but about a year ago, I sat through just one too many superhero movies for my taste. Like, and they're all kind of the same, and yeah, I finally I just felt totally worn out by these CGI extravaganzas in which two superheroes fight with each other, blasting through a major American city that's made up, which, and nobody dies even though half the skyscrapers are knocked over, right? I just couldn't take it anymore. So I said, listen, no. listen, listen. Why, I'll go to whatever movies you want to go to, it's fine. But let me show you some of the science fiction of my youth, some books, some movies, some television shows that I grew up on where the special effects, by your standards, are crap. Right? But it doesn't matter, right? And the first thing we did is we watched the original Star Trek in order, right? Starting with the pilot, right? One episode per night after dinner, right? you know, you know what those, it's plywood and they're all wearing outer space turtlenecks and like you know, there's nothing, you know, none of it is, is visually interesting mm-hmm. at all. But you know, I watched it when the show was on in the sixties and you know, it's utterly transporting. He loved it. He loved it. We moved on, we watched the aliens movies, right? And he he's he's a smart cookie, he's thirteen. He noticed That every first-person shooter that he plays, Halo and all those other games, he figured out that every single one of them took all of its textures from the Aliens movies. That's where that was invented, right? The corridors and the lights flashing and the steam, all of that stuff, every first-person shooter just is lifted entirely from the Aliens franchise. Right? So we went through, we did a whole bunch of things. I gave him some of the ju- uh, the Heinlein juvenilia that I grew mm-hmm. up on, Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. Tunnel in the Sky, yeah. um, all this stuff. I, he, I haven't made him watch 2001 A Space Odyssey yet because it is incredibly dull. But um, <laughs> but we're working our way through it. And, and the Dune, I think, is something that should be on the list. The thing that we're doing now is actually contemporary. Um, you guys don't have the show here yet. It's, uh, it's too bad, but... Um, Last spring we were on vacation, and um, I downloaded a show because a friend of mine was the was the creator of the show. And it's called The Expanse, right? But it's based on novels that I believe you guys have access to, right? The James A. Corey, he's one of yours, right? Yeah. Okay, which is two guys. Um, And I had not read the novels, I had not heard of the novels, but I heard of the television show, and I downloaded it, and my son and I together watched season one. And it's actually a pretty tricky show, it's very political, it's not obvious how to assemble the story, it asks a lot of the viewer, it's pretty challenging, it's terrific, he loved it. And I said, great, let's go read the books together, because I'm going on book tour, and the one month I'm not on book tour this summer, you're going to camp, so I'm actually going to be in the same house with you one month out of five. And he's 13. So we are reading the Expanse books together as uh, the current um, text for the Father-Son Science Fiction Book Club. (laughs) But Dune is a good one. I'll put that on the list. Thank
1: you. I think Justin said earlier, I'm kind of good at it. I think he's far more than kind of good. And I'd like you all to thank him for an excellent Mm. presentation. (laughs) Thank
3: you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine. ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.